but we have issues with authority. Uh, that much is clear. Uh, you may have noticed that in the lead up to the Academy Awards uh, tonight, that, that annual celebration of the best that movies can make, there's a, a movement afoot to do away with gendered categories. Uh, the idea being that I, ideas like best actor or best actress uh, are marginalizing to people who don't identify with either one gender or the other. Now, whatever you might think of that, it, it certainly represents uh, a shift in authority. It would have been in the past that the academy was recognized as the one who bestows honors and recognizes achievements. Uh, nowadays, we see the academy as having to sort of bow its will to the, the individual, right? The small minority that sees itself differently. I think I'm gonna need my manuscript. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm having a little te technical difficulties here today. Um, yeah, hold on. Yeah. Do you guys in the back have it by any chance? Well, I know my next illustration, so we can at least get that far, and then after that, I have no idea where we're going. Uh, I was reminded of this fact uh, recently when uh, I went to the cardiologist. So it was a relatively unimportant discussion about a minor procedure, about something that's not going to be a, a huge uh, issue. But the cardiologist laid out for me uh, four different options. Uh, he said to me, you, know, you could do this, you could do this, we could do this, and we could do this. So which, which would you prefer? And I thought to myself, like, what do I prefer? <laughs> I mean, I studied classics in college, right? So if we're talking Greek verbs, then definitely I want to weigh in on this matter. But when we're talking about my heart, right, I, I would actually prefer you tell me what we should do, right? But I, I think what you see is a bit of like what's called the, the WebMDification of medicine, right? This idea that because I, I have access to information, uh, because I have sort of access to an authority outside myself. I can, I can therefore sort of grab information and then I should be the one making all the decisions. Right, the, the problem with this sort of shift, this distrust of authority that we have, is that we actually do need some kind of authority. Right, we do actually need someone who will tell us uh, what it is that is true. Right, in fact, I'm not qualified to make decisions about my, my heart and, oh, look, it's back. It's a Christmas miracle, okay. All right, scratch all that, that was all wrong, it turns out, <laughs> right? And we do actually need authority, don't we? Like we need people who can, who can intervene in certain situations. I need a cardiologist who can tell me what's going on with my heart. When there's an accident, we need a, a police officer to come and, and sort of figure out the best way forward. Now, our, our suspicion of authority is not without some merit. Right? We are suspicious of authority because it's so often misguided. It's so often misused. So the reason why people are suspicious of doctors is that doctors are sometimes wrong. Right? Whether it's an innocent mistake or even a lack of care or concern, there are times when we, we have a sense that we actually do need to advocate for ourselves. We need to take authority over our own decisions. Uh, certainly stories of police brutality, political corruption, pastoral abuse, Right, even instances of racial bias in, in the way the Oscars are bestowed, right? They make us distrustful of people who exercise authority, right? And then on top of those sort of wider stories that we see outside, 
We have our own experiences of misused authority. So whether it's a, a pastor or a husband or a parent or a boss, right? If you've had to endure someone in authority over you using that position for their own purposes at your expense, right, it makes sense that we're suspicious of authority. So what do we do? We need authority, right? We need, we need a doctor who can tell us how to move forward. We need a police officer. We need politicians. But we're still suspicious because in a fallen world, authority is often misused. Well, what if we had a perfect authority? Uh, maybe our, I'll just hold on to that, thanks. Uh, maybe our problem isn't so much with authority per se as it is with the abuse of authority. What if we had a really good doctor, a perfect doctor, one who knew everything, who always charted the best course of treatment, right? If you found that doctor, you'd be crazy not to listen to them, right? If there was a coach who always called the perfect play, a politician who always knew the right thing to do and was animated by the best motives, right? We would want that person to make all the decisions. But sadly, that's not our experience of authority most of the time. And I think that can make it hard for us to hear the gospel call to follow Jesus as our Lord. It can make, us, it, can make it hard for us to hear that call as good news. Right? Some combination of my experience of the world and my own sinful tendency to prefer autonomy, right? those things conspire together to make it seem like the best news God could give to me is to, to put me in charge of my own life, to tell me to follow my own desires, my own sense of right and wrong. Well, we've been in a section of 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul has in some ways been defending the authority of his ministry, his right to tell the church the true gospel, how to believe and how to respond. He is defending his ministry against challenges and opposition that have arisen in the Corinthian church. And in our passage for this morning that Daryl just read for us, he's going to conclude a sort of first round of thoughts in this regard. He's going to pick it up in earnest again in chapter 10. But what we see in our passage is that Paul wants to talk to the Corinthians about the way they've responded to his authority and also their response to God's authority in their lives. And so as we consider this passage, let's look at two things. First, a plea for openness in response to Paul's authority. And then second, a plea for purity in response to God's authority. So a plea for openness and a plea for purity. All right, so first, a plea for openness. Uh, we see sort of two sections that bookend our passage for this morning. So you have, you have uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses uh, 11 to 13. And then if you skip down to chapter 7, verses 2 to 4, uh, these, these two sections serve as something of a, of a bracket or a bookend. Uh, Paul begins with a reminder of, his, of the nature of his uh, authority and ministry, and then he calls the Corinthians to respond appropriately. So the, the overarching picture here is one of contrasting postures. Paul tells us about his ministry team, about, about his approach. Right? He says that we've been open and loving towards the church. Uh, Paul gives us four characteristics of his ministry uh, in this brief passage. There at the beginning of verse 11, first of all, he says that we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. He, he tells the church, we haven't held anything back from you. Uh, his ministry hasn't been characterized by doublespeak. 
right? He hasn't, he hasn't withheld anything that they needed to hear. He says, we've been an open book. Uh, translated literally, the Greek that Paul uses there is something like, our mouths are open to you. And then at the end of verse 11, he says, our heart is wide open to you. Uh, literally in the Greek, it's our heart is enlarged towards you. Right? Not only have his words been open, but his heart is wide open as well. That's the second thing. The apostle uh, professes his posture of love towards the Corinthians. He says, our, our words, our speech have been open to you. Our hearts are open to you as well. He picks up that idea in, in verse 3 of chapter 7. He, he raises the stakes emotionally. He says, I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And he tells the church that not only is his heart big towards them, but they've taken up residence there. They, they're in his heart. Right? We all have people that we love, people that we feel strongly about, right? family, friends, brothers and sisters in the church. And we all have some limit to how many people we can actually love like that. Here, Paul wants to know, he wants the Corinthians to know, you've made the cut. You, you are in my heart. He goes on to say, we're willing to, to live and die together. That's a a sort of common Greco-Roman uh, way of talking about abiding friendship. So maybe we might talk about people that we do life together with, right? It's the same idea. Paul is committed long-term to the people in the church there. He wants to live together and die together. So Paul's ministry is marked by intense and personal love for the church. It's also marked by transparent honesty and integrity. Uh, that's the third thing. If you look there in chapter 7, verse 2, uh, Paul says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. So Paul fires off three statements using a couple of rhetorical devices in the original language to kind of add some punch there. He uses anaphora, or, or the repetition of a, of a word at the beginning of the phrase. So in the, in the Greek, he, he puts that word no one right at the beginning, no one have we wronged, no one have we corrupted, no one have we taken advantage of, right? That's a way of, of, of placing emphasis in, in the Greek language, right? He wants to be clear, not, not even a single person, you could not find a human being that we've wronged or corrupted or taken advantage of. And then each verb in those three phrases uh, ends with the same verbal ending in Greek, Right, that's a, a literary device for all you English teachers, you know there, homeopticon, right? This idea that the ending of a verb can be repeated to give emphasis, right? The upshot that is this letter was read aloud to the Corinthians, this would have been like a punch, right? These statements would have stood out. Paul really wants to emphasize uh, what he's saying here, right? No one have we wronged, no one have we corrupted, no one have we taken advantage of. The question is, why is this such a big deal to Paul? Like, why does he bring up these three particular things? Uh, of all the things that he's done, of all the things he hasn't done, why does he emphasize these three? Taking advantage, wronging, corrupting. Well, some people speculate that these were things that he was accused of doing by his opponents in the church. And so he wants to give a sort of loud and clear answer that, in fact, he wasn't guilty. But it's, it's more likely, I think, given of what we're going to read a bit later in the book, Lord willing, that these are actually Paul's way of pointing his finger at his opponents. They're the ones who have corrupted. They're the ones who have wronged. They're the ones who have taken advantage. 
But whatever the reason, the point is clear. Paul has conducted himself with openness in his speech, openness of heart, and complete integrity and honesty. And he says the results speak for themselves in your life. We haven't corrupted anyone. The fourth thing that characterizes Paul and his ministry team is what we might call a persistent hope. Look there in verse 4. I think if you've been here for this whole series of sermons in 2 Corinthians, what Paul says here should strike you as extraordinary. He says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Paul says he's acting with great boldness toward the church. If you remember back in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul said that the new covenant ministry of the Spirit uh, gives them such hope that they're very bold in their ministry. Here he comes to the Corinthians with the same idea that he's, he's not cowed by his opponents and their criticism. He's not been reduced to playing games and practicing politics in the church, but he's relating to them again on honest, intimate terms. And then he also says he has great pride in them. Right, we could translate that, that phrase there, he boasts in them often. He, he even glories in them. If you remember back in chapter 1, Paul said that the Corinthians would be his boast on the day of the Lord Jesus. And he, wanted, he hoped, actually, that, that someday they would come to a point where they would boast in him. Last week, we saw that Paul wanted to give the church a reason to boast about his ministry. And so now he wants them to know, I boast about you. I glory in you. I am proud of you. He goes on to say that he's full of comfort, full of, we might say, encouragement because of them. So even in affliction, right, and Paul's given us a couple of lists of hardships already. He's going to give us another long one and a few more chapters, Lord willing. Even in the midst of terrible affliction, the work of God in the midst of the Corinthian church brings him great joy. And again, this is amazing because this is the Corinthian church, right? We, we read 1 Corinthians. We've been studying 2 Corinthians. We know how messed up this church is, right? We know how how prone to to folly and sin they were. We know how quick they were to embrace those who were slandering Paul. We know how immorality and quarreling seem to crop up over and over again in the church. But Paul says there in verse 3 of chapter 7, his goal is not to condemn them. Even when he has to correct them, even when he has to instruct them, and we've already seen Paul is very willing to do that, it always comes from an open heart. It always comes from a glad spirit. Paul's ministry is marked by openness, love, integrity, and joy. In contrast to that, you have the Corinthians' posture towards Paul. Look there in verse 12 of chapter 6. We read this. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. The Corinthians are restricted. They are penned in. They are limited but it's, Paul's clear, it's not by anything that we've done. It's not anything that, that Paul or his ministry team had done. Rather, he says, it's, it's your hearts. It's your own desires, your own feelings. It's your affections for Paul that are limited. And so he calls on them there in verse 13. He says, in return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Right? Paul calls them. Paul says, look, our heart is wide open to you. And so he calls on them kind of like a a father teaching his child about fair play, right? He he says, look, we've been this way with you, 
make an appropriate return our, on our investment, right? Respond appropriately to our love and our care and our sacrifice. It means widening their hearts to him. Or as he pleads there in chapter 7, verse 2, he says, make room in your hearts for us. That's what the apostle wants from the church at Corinth in response to his ministry. He's been so kind. He's been so gracious. He's been so loving. And all he wants from them is some sense that, that they're with him as he points them to Christ. We've seen so much of Paul's example here in 2 Corinthians, and, and each week we're faced with the fact that we're not actually in exactly the same circumstances that Paul was in. So you're not a first century apostle, right? You're not writing a letter to the church. But I do think, even though there's some discontinuity between our circumstances and Paul's, I do think there's a lot for us to learn each week as we, as we listen to Paul talk about his posture, as, we talk about his, as Paul talks about his priorities in ministry. I'm struck here in, in these verses by just how vulnerable and how intimate Paul is in his communication with the church. Right? Paul is a man with authority. Right? The very first verse of this letter, right, Paul reminds us that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. But his use of that authority was pure. Right? What we see over and over again is that he exercised his authority sacrificially on behalf of the church, usually at his own personal expense. He was loving, open, honest, truthful. And he rejoiced when he saw what God was doing, even though there were serious problems that he had to correct. And friends, I think that's good leadership. I think that's a proper use of authority, right? To, to rejoice in what is good, even as we have to correct what is wrong. Right? We all thrive in an atmosphere of grace. We're all better off when people appreciate uh, our strengths before they address our weaknesses. And I'm struck just looking at Paul here, just how much he sounds like Jesus. Right? Loving, honest, sacrificial, full of joy at what God is doing. Right? It's, it's no wonder, it's no surprise that the Holy Spirit's work in Paul drove him to this kind of ministry. And I'm struck by how good a model that is for us, right? In whatever ways we exercise leadership and authority, I think especially in the home, right? In marriage, in parenting, especially in the church among our brothers and sisters, it ought to look something like Paul's description of his ministry to the Corinthians. It ought to be open, loving, honest, joyful, and I think we also need to hear Paul's plea to the church that they would open their hearts to him. Right? It is possible, especially for those who are growing up in a, in a world that is so suspicious of authority, it is possible that, that we could be so reluctant to, to listen to anyone else, that we could be so sure that we're right, so enamored by the idea of what else is out there, that we might miss what God is saying to us, that we might miss what God is doing in our midst. And so when the Lord does provide us with good leaders, we ought to pay them back for their work and their sacrifice by opening our hearts to them. So kids, if, you're, if your parents love you, if your parents are, are working hard to point you towards the Lord Jesus and to, to help you grow, 
Well, one way that you can pay them back is by opening your heart to them, listening to what they say. Trust them. The same goes for husbands and wives. Wives, if you have a husband who is loving you like Paul is loving the church, if he's sacrificial, if he's honest and open, then open your heart to him. Church, if you have leaders who are open and honest, who are loving and sacrificial, then we pay them back by opening our hearts to them. We as Christians have a a different relationship to authority. We understand that authority is given to us by God for our good, for our benefit. Every time you see God instituting authority in the Bible, it is for the good of his people. So certainly authority can be misused and abused, right? That is a a great and grievous evil. Uh, But we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We should be people who exercise authority and who respond to authority uh, in ways that are consistent uh, with the Bible's instructions. So that's our first point, a plea for openness. Uh, Let's move on and see our second point then, a plea for purity. And we see that in chapter 6, verse 14, going through the first verse of chapter 7. There in verse 14, Paul gives the church a prohibition. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That image might be a bit lost on us. We don't use yokes much in our daily lives anymore. But a yoke is a, a wooden cross piece that would fasten across the neck or the shoulders of an animal, really two animals, to attach them together and to get them to work together, usually to pull something like a plow or a cart. And so you had to yoke up animals evenly. So if you put an ox in a yoke with a donkey, right, they're not going to be able to pull straight. One is stronger, it is taller, it is wider than the other. And so when they start to move forward together, the whole operation is going to go off kilter. You had to yoke together two animals that were of, of equal size. Right? You had to equally yoke them together. And so what's Paul talking about here when he says, he tells the Corinthians, don't be unequally yoked to unbelievers. Well, it's clear that Paul's talking about a spiritual uh, uh, idea, right? This is a metaphor, right? He wants the Christians there not to, not to bind themselves, right? Not to connect their lives their ways of thinking, their attitudes, the loves of their hearts. Paul wants the church not to hitch themselves up to unbelievers in these matters, right? Lest they get get pulled off course. Now that raises two questions. Why is that important? And what does it mean? Why does Paul care that we as believers not be yoked to unbelievers? And then what does that mean to be yoked to an unbeliever and how do we avoid it? Well, Paul's answer to that first question, why is this important, comes in a series of five rhetorical questions, beginning there in the middle of verse 14. So Paul tells us why it's important. He asks there in the middle of verse 14, first question, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Clearly, the answer is supposed to be none, right? The antithesis here is between righteousness, upright behavior, ethical conduct, And lawlessness, right? A a disregard for God and his ways, right? These are are normal categories in the Bible for those who love God and and for those who don't, 
for those who are concerned to obey God and keep his ways, and for those who have no such concern. So if you think back to Psalm 1, we read, blessed are the righteous. Right? But then a few verses later, but not so the wicked or the, the lawless. Right? Paul's point here is that right and wrong have nothing in common. The end of verse 14, he asks another rhetorical question. He says, what fellowship has light with darkness? If you remember back in chapter 4, Paul described our coming to Christ as God shining the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ into the darkness of our hearts. Right? God's light drives out darkness. Right? It drives out the darkness of uncomprehending unbelief. Right? When God's light appears, the darkness flees. So there can be no partnership between them. If you go into a dark room and you flip on the light, the darkness goes away. Right? They don't sort of hang out together in partnership. In verse 15, he gives us a third rhetorical question. What accord has Christ with Belial? This is weird until you learn that Belial was an early Jewish word, uh, way of speaking about the devil. It seems to take the, the name of the pagan god Baal and the Hebrew word for worthless and combine them together. It was a way of speaking about the evil one. And so Paul's question is, what accord can there be between Jesus and Satan? The word that he uses there for accord, it was, had the sense of voices singing in harmony, right? So, so Jacob and Esther Grace were up here earlier leading us in music, and they were, they were harmonizing their voices together, right, making it sound nice. Paul's saying, look, if Jesus and, and the devil were singing, it wouldn't harmonize, right? They're not singing the same music. They're not singing the same tune, right? They're, they're, they're singing from opposite ends of the score. He continues on then with a fourth question. He says, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? You see that there at the end of verse 15. Paul uses a phrase here for sharing a portion that, that always refers to sharing in God's salvation, right? sharing in the inheritance that God has set aside for his people. So, for example, in Colossians 1, Paul uses this same word when he says, God the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, friends, there is a stark contrast. There's a dividing line that runs down humanity. God has promised that any and all who trust in Christ, but only those who trust in Christ, will receive an inheritance of eternal life in a world made new. Those who do not trust in Christ will inherit not eternal life, but judgment, the wrath that they deserve for their sins. Right, this is the great division in humanity. Jesus compares the day of judgment to a shepherd, separating sheep from goats. And so Paul is saying, with such a different inheritance, how can believers and unbelievers be united? And then finally, his fifth rhetorical question there in verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Right, some things are just fundamentally incompatible. Right? You'll never see a Cowboys player inducted into the commander's ring of honor. Right? You're not going to see a statue of Manchester United legend Ryan Giggs outside of Anfield. Did I get that right? Rebecca, Mike, I got that right? Good. Right? Well, in a serious way, idols and their worship, they don't belong in the temple of the living God. Paul may have in mind a story that we read in 2 Kings 21 where Manasseh, the king of Judah, 
He sets up carved images of Asherah, a Canaanite deity, and he sets them up in the temple of the Lord. And so the author of 2 Kings comments on his actions, speaking about the people of Judah. He says, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. It's almost like the, the author of Kings is saying, like, this is about the worst thing you could do. It's one thing to worship idols, but to worship idols in the temple of the Lord, right? There can be no greater incompatibility than that between the true living God and false idols. And so Paul asks these five questions to highlight the differences between Christians and people who don't follow the Lord. Now, to be clear, we have a lot in common with unbelievers. We are all made in the image of God. And as such, we are equal in terms of dignity and worth. Right? We don't believe that Christians are somehow superior in, this, in some regard to unbelievers. Right? We are the same in the sense that every human being has a sense of right and wrong. Every human being is capable of love and creativity and beauty. Right? Romans 1 tells us that all people have a certain knowledge of God that they gain from the world around them and from their own conscience. And I think particularly in our own culture, which is still infused with Judeo-Christian values, less so than it used to be, but certainly more so than Corinth was, I think we share some convictions with the people around us about things like honesty and kindness and fairness, right? Certainly more than the church at Corinth did with their pagan society. But even though all of that is true, and even though people who love the Lord Jesus can be kind and funny, and intelligent, and attractive, and pleasant, Paul's reminding us here there is a fundamental difference. What partnership can there be between a life committed, however imperfectly, but truly to righteousness, and a life that has no such commitment? When it boils down to it, we have different values, different morals. What fellowship does light have with darkness? When it boils down to it, we are in different spiritual spheres. What accord has Christ with Belial? When it boils down to it, we serve different masters. What portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? When it boils down to it, we don't, we don't share in common a portion of God's gift of life. There's no, there's no common ground on which to build a relationship. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? When it boils down to it, our lives are given to the worship of different things, right? They are oriented differently. So you can see why Paul thinks it's important that believers not bind themselves to unbelievers in such a way that they would be pulled astray, right? That they would be pulled into darkness, into lawlessness, into the worship of idols, so that raises our second question then. What does it mean to be yoked then to an unbeliever? Uh, I've heard Christians suggest lots of things from you shouldn't sort of go into business with an unbeliever. You shouldn't work with an unbeliever. You shouldn't sort of live next to an unbeliever. What exactly is it that Paul is forbidding here? Well, we know he's not arguing for a complete withdrawal from the world. Right? He makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 5.10 that that's not what we should be looking for, right? He's not encouraging a sort of complete withdrawal into a life of monasticism and solitude, right? We should, as Christians, 
cultivate good relationships with those people in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods who don't know the Lord. We want to have good relationships with those people. We want to show the love of Christ to them. But there has to be something that Paul has in mind. And I think in context, it's most likely that Paul is referring to his opponents there in Corinth. So later on in chapter 11, he's going to say that these false teachers proclaim another Jesus and a different gospel. And so they would certainly fall into the category of unbelievers. That's probably Paul's sort of first level of application here. He's warning them against hitching their wagons, yoking themselves up to these false teachers who are preaching a different gospel. They are, in fact, unbelievers. But there's also a broader principle here that we need to apply. And that is we need to examine our lives to see if we have connected ourselves to people who are heading in a different direction in a way that's spiritually dangerous. I think certainly this is really important for single people as you think about dating and marriage. Uh, Unbelievers, as I said, might be kind and attractive and intelligent and funny. You might be able to talk yourself into the fact that, that they're not hostile to your faith. But here, Paul presses on us the differences. He presses on us the incompatibilities that are insurmountable so long as this person persists in rejecting Jesus. Now, Paul's also clear in another one of his letters to the Corinthians that if you're married already to an unbeliever, then you stay with them as long as they're willing to stay with you. And you live out the gospel by the way you love them and pray for them. But Paul's words here would warn us not to enter into these kinds of relationships with someone who doesn't love the Lord Jesus. And there may be a host of other ways that we need to be careful not to yoke ourselves to unbelievers. We should ask ourselves, is there any relationship in my life where I'm being dragged off course? If I'm, if I'm being honest, I'm trying to pull sort of my life with this person and it's, it's not going towards Jesus. Can you see yourself accepting the values of unbelievers? or adopting their ways of thinking? Are you involved in any communities, whether they're in person or even online, where you find yourself being pulled in a different direction? If so, Paul's instructions here would warn you. He says, stop, do not be unequally yoked. The, the original language makes it clear. He says, he's saying stop being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Right? Avoid it if you can and get out of it if you're already in it. Now, before we move on, I just want to point out two things about what Paul says here. Uh, First, I think this is actually a really good reminder about how much we have in common with everyone who is in Christ, right? If we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, I think the the flip side is that actually people who are in Christ, we can be yoked with them. It's so easy for us to be aware of all the things that are different between us, Right? But being in Christ means that we are in fellowship with one another, that on our deepest level, we are compatible. Right? We are on the side of righteousness and light. Right? We have sided with Christ. We are part of God's temple. We do share together in the inheritance that he's promised. And friends, that is a lot more important, a lot more foundational than how much money we have, our taste in entertainments, our style, our hobbies, our ethnicity, or any other thing that might normally sort of bring people together. In Christ, we have so much in common. We have so much fellowship. And the second thing 
is that if this idea of being unequally yoked doesn't sound right to you, if it, if it sounds like sort of fundamentalism, if it seems exclusive and harsh and judgmental, it may be that we've failed to take holiness seriously enough. You see, at some point in the last century, Christians got it in their heads that what we really needed to do was to show the world just how like them we are so that they could sort of make the, the smallest jump possible over into the church. But the goal of Christians has never been to show the world how much we're like them. Rather, it's to, to show the world how distinct we are. Right? We are called to be incompatible in the way that we love, in the way that we talk, in the things that please us, in the holiness of our lives. We ought to be so marked by Jesus that, that that incompatibility is something that not only we're aware of, but actually even unbelievers are aware of. I think that brings us then to the rest of our passage. And this is where we'll conclude this morning. Paul's mention of the temple there in verse 16, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Uh, sort of spins him off uh, on the topic of the temple. He gets thinking about the nature of the church. He says there in the middle of verse 16, after asking what agreement has the temple of God with idols, he says, for we are the temple of the living God. Right? In the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God is present with his people. And so when the New Testament refers to believers or to the church as, as a whole being a temple, it's pointing to the fact that God is present with us by his Holy Spirit. And so as Paul unpacks this idea, this idea that we are the temple of the living God, he lists out for us three promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament. You see those in verses 16 to 18 of chapter 6. I just want to look briefly at each one. There at the end of verse 16, we read this. Paul says, and as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul is stitching together a promise here by combining Leviticus 26, verses 11 to 12, and Ezekiel 37, 27. Right, both of these passages, interestingly enough, if you read the whole context, in both of those passages in the Old Testament, the Lord talks about yokes. He talks about, if you remember in the passage uh, that uh, Mackenzie read earlier for us in the service, he talked about how he broke the, the yoke of slavery in Egypt. Right? And so it seems like maybe the, the, the conversation about yokes has, has brought this passage to mind uh, for Paul. And the promise here is clear, that God will be present with his people. He will identify with them. He's going to be in the closest possible relationship to them so that, that he can say that they are mine and I am theirs. And of course, this promise is fulfilled in the New Testament church where God's spirit does dwell with his people. Right? We are now the temple of the living God. We are now the body of Christ. The second promise is there in verse 17. Paul says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. This is a quote from Isaiah 52, which, again, another chapter in the Bible that talks about yokes. Here, talking about the yoke of, of uh, exile and, and foreign uh, rule. Right? God's people here in Isaiah 52 are being called to come out of exile, out of the land of pollution and uncleanness, out of ritual defilement. Right? They're being called into God's salvation. 
right? And so in Paul's context, he reads that as a call for us as Christians to come out of worldly relationships, to come out of defiling practices, right? And then the promise there at the end comes from Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 41, where God says, when we come out of the world, he will welcome us into his presence, that idea gets unpacked then in the third promise in verse 18. Paul says, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So here Paul's quoting from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. And the context here is really extraordinary. Right? This is a promise that God, Paul calls him the Lord Almighty here, is making to King David through the prophet Nathan about David's son, Solomon, right? God is saying that, that Solomon is going to be the one who builds a temple for him, that, that Solomon will be a, a son to him, that, that God is going to take such special interest in and care for Solomon that Solomon is going to be like his son. And what's amazing here is that Paul edits this passage. He edits this promise under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Paul takes out Solomon and he inserts you. He takes out the word him, referring to Solomon, and he puts in the word you, referring to the church. He changes the word son, again referring to Solomon, and he makes it sons and daughters. See, Paul is telling us that those of us who believe in Jesus, we are heirs of this amazing promise. And perhaps no, no promise is more amazing than this, that we would be welcomed into God's presence, right? Not merely as servants, right? Not merely tolerated, but we would be welcomed as God's sons and daughters. That we would be welcomed into his presence as children. Now let me point out two things about these three promises, and this will be where we finish. First, it's important to be really clear, these promises that Paul lays out for us here in chapter 6, they only apply to us in Christ. God's presence with us, his welcoming of us, his adoption of us and willingness to recognize us as sons and daughters, his willingness to be called our God and to call us his people, none of those things come to us on the basis of our goodness. Right? There is no amount of separating yourself that you can accomplish. There's no amount of separation from the world that will make you worthy of these promises. Instead, what's clear is that we take hold of these promises through faith in Christ. Jesus, God's son in human flesh, was perfectly holy, perfectly pleasing to his father, untouched by sin, untouched by impurity. He never needed to come out of wickedness. He was never contaminated by the world. But rather than enjoying the promises of the Father, on the cross, Jesus endured the wrath and the punishment that we deserve. He took our sin upon himself, standing as our substitute, offering his life as a sacrifice in our place. And three days later, he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And so now, all of the promises of God, forgiveness of our sins, eternal life with him, the promise of his presence with us, his willingness to accept us, his identification of us as his sons and daughters, it all comes to us when we take hold of Christ by faith. When we turn from our sins 
and we trust in him. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, we are really glad that you're here. But the Bible does make a very clear line, a line of distinction between those who have taken hold of God's salvation through faith in Christ and those who haven't. There is a very clear line, but friend, it's a line you can cross right now. God freely offers salvation to anyone who will turn from their sin, anyone who will lay down arms and turn to Christ in faith. We would urge you to do that, to take hold of all of these promises through faith in Christ. If you have questions about what that means, we would be delighted to talk more to you about that. You can talk to anybody that you've seen up here this morning. You can talk to me after the service. We would love to tell you about how all of these promises that God makes can be true of you through Christ. And the second final observation is that these promises of God that Paul lays out for us here, they change the way that we live. Listen to Paul's application of his little sermon. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see Paul's response to these promises that God has made. What should we do as the church in light of what God has promised to us? Paul says holiness. He calls his beloved brothers and sisters to cleanse themselves. And it's a, a holistic, all-encompassing call. He says, every defilement. Well, Paul, you just mean defilements of the body, right? No, no. Every defilement of body or spirit. Right? That's everything. Right? Everything sinful. Whether it's, it's a matter of your spirit, whether it's a matter of your physical body, whether it's lust or envy, coarse joking or pride, angry outbursts or cold resentment, whatever it is, Paul says, we must cleanse ourselves from it. We must come out of it like the people of Israel came out of the land of exile and defilement. Right? If there really is no fellowship, there's no agreement between light and darkness, if there really is no common ground between Christ and Belial, then we need to live like that's true. We need to come out of the world. We need to cleanse ourselves of all the things that are defiling us. He says there at the end of verse 1, we need to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. That the idea of completion has the sense of, of sort of bringing something to the purpose for which it was intended. We need to live out the purpose for which we were set apart by God, and that is holiness. God called us out of darkness so that we can live in the light. He's freed us from the tyranny of the evil one so that we might learn to live like Christ. He's called us to righteousness so that we would no longer walk in lawlessness. We bring that good purpose of God to completion by actually living it out in our lives. And Paul says we do that in the fear of God. Right? The fear of God, particularly in the New Testament, has the sense of, of reverence, awe, sobriety. Right? The, the appropriate way to feel in light of God's power and his, his holiness and his mighty acts. 
right? If we understand who God is, who it is that makes these promises to us, right? Who it is that is present in our midst, who it is that has looked on us as sons and daughters, right? If we understood who it is that saved us and how holy and how good he is, friends, we wouldn't take sin lightly. We wouldn't think it too great a thing to be called out from the world and its defilements. We are naturally suspicious of authority. And here what we have is a call to submit ourselves fully in appropriate fear and reverence to the authority of the Lord Almighty. And this means not being yoked to people or to philosophies or institutions that are incompatible with the holiness and faith that we have in Christ. And it means purifying ourselves from every defilement of body and soul. And brothers and sisters, I hope you can see how this is good news. God didn't save us and then leave us in our sins. He didn't make light available and then sit by while we rot in spiritual darkness. He didn't free us from Satan's tyranny, but then leave us stuck in his dungeon. He didn't make us his temple and then sort of tolerate us worshiping idols. Now, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus died, and he rose from the grave to defeat our sin, to set us free from those things that were enslaving us, to cleanse us from all of our defilement, to make sure that we're welcomed into the presence of God. And so as we come now to the table of the Lord, to to come into his presence, to celebrate the fellowship that we have with him in the light, to celebrate the share that we have in his salvation and the partnership that we have with him in righteousness, let's come committed to holiness in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we delight in the promises that you've made to us. Father, you have been so kind in sending your son to die for us, and to rise for us, and giving us your Holy Spirit, making us your temple, calling us out of light, out of darkness, into light. Father, as your sons and daughters, as those who are welcomed into your presence, as those who share in the salvation that you have promised to us as an inheritance, would you help us to be holy? Would you help us to have, by your Spirit, a proper fear, a proper reverence, a proper awe of you? Would you conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus? Would our use of authority and our response to authority look just like Jesus? We ask these things for his glory and for our joy in his name. Amen.